Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. Welcome to Episode 9 of Plan B Security, where we'll continue the conversation from Episode 8, where we talked about security leadership strategy and tactics. Not only did we discuss using risk scenarios to help inform your larger strategy, but then we transferred that into the CIDR model, which was the control, the impact, the threat, the expense, and the risk, and using that to drive your tactical roadmap. So then what comes next? Let's say that you've gone through all the work, you've identified your strategy, you know the tactics. The tactics, again, are the project works that are going to be building up to you achieving that larger strategy. The strategy is what you need to sell the rest of the organization. How do you do that? You use data. These are going to be things like um, some people call them KPIs, uh, key performance indicators. Some folks can use metrics out of OKRs as your key results, or they can just be straight up operational metrics showing volume or impact of certain things that you've been working on or that you're going to work on underneath your strategy. Now, normally you'll have your operational metrics and or your KPIs, uh, things like keep the lights on, things that the business needs from a security perspective to continue to function at an absolute minimum. Could be things like third party reviews, compliance requirements, uh, your terminations, your onboarding work, uh, review of the onboarding work, supporting of certain types of uh, features or, or tools or, you know, some sort of access to things if your security org is responsible for that. But it can be a double-edged sword because the second that you're incentivized to give access faster, you're no longer taking the security consideration as the priority. Now, let's say that somebody came to you and said, hey, I do need you to grant access faster. You can, number one, show them the volume of what you need to do. And number two, you can say, okay, I can grant it faster, but it's going to take XYZ amount of time for us to be able to, to do that correctly. Because remember, as security professionals, we always want to do it the right way. Now, what does that look like? It could be really subjective. So depending on where you sit in your perspective and your experience, there might be a better way that you've seen it in the past. But one thing that I've seen uh, that worked really well for me is where you come up with risk tiering. So you can say, okay, I know that this level access has this level of data classification to it, and that could have these types of risks. So if we think about the five most common data classification types of public, private, internal, confidential, and restricted, if somebody is asking for just access to public, private, or internal data, that's probably going to be considered more low risk. The second that they're asking for confidential or restricted data, that's probably going to be a little bit more of a medium risk. Now, let's say that they want administrative access or the ability to write, modify, and in some cases just view what we would consider super confidential or super restricted uh, data sets, depending on how you classify it in, in your place of work. That could be a high risk. So we know that we're going to need to spend more time reviewing the high and medium risk ones than the low risks. So maybe we can put an automation in place where, you know, we're doing a tertiary review. Does it just align with the most private thing that we can be doing as an organization, just in case there's some sort of internal data and, and there's some sort of sensitive information in there, or it could be a gateway into getting a little bit more access. Remember most private. Let's think about it from that perspective. But we're going to spend a lot more time digging into those ones that are for the high risk and medium risks. Why do you need this? What is your business case? How long do you need it for? Because just because you're getting it doesn't mean you'll have it forever. That's usually a really good compromise. How is this impact? How are you going to measure the impact if you do get this access? And in some cases, you need to file risk exception within your risk register, or maybe you just need to get um, VIP level approvals on the ticket just to make sure that everybody does understand 
hey, there is a lot of risk with this access granting. This way you're spending a lot more time reviewing the things that matter than the things that may not necessarily have any impact at all. And in the event that that leads to some sort of data leak or compromise, you do now have a smart defense with, hey, we did do our due diligence on this one. We didn't just grant it because they asked. Every piece of tactical work that you're doing should add up to the larger sum of your strategy. Good leaders write playbooks. You can educate without needing to be one-on-one -on -one when a playbook exists. So if work comes up for you know reviewing some of these tickets, high risk, medium risk, low risk, whichever one it is, you make playbooks for each one of those. Turn that into a key result for your objectives that you're trying to accomplish. Now this piece isn't specific to security, but you've seen how we've gone ahead and we've taken the day-to-day the -day operations of everything going on, turned that into tactical work. Now we're adding that up into solving the larger strategy and making more progress towards accomplishing where we want to be. Now one thing I will say is a lot of people do OKRs wrong. And specifically, they have terrible objectives, and then they have really nonsense key results. Like if you've ever done a key result, you want to get to 100% of something, you're probably doing it wrong. Key results are not the goal. Key results are the journey. Your goal is the objective. Measure yourself on success of the journey and how well you're making progress on the journey. And just because you set a key result today doesn't mean this is going to be the same key result you use next quarter. I see this as a downfall to a lot of OKR set within security organizations because it's, I want to achieve 100% compliance. I want to achieve 100% security. I want to prevent 100% of the security events that we may experience. And remember, using words like incident and breach are technically legal conclusions, as I learned this week. But nonetheless, your key result should never be something like 100%. The second you reach 100%, it is now your responsibility to turn that into a business KPI, uh, something that you can measure on a day-to-day, -day, keep the lights on perspective. You need to do this now that you've achieved that 100% in order to sustain the business. So when you talk about the journey, how are we going to get there? What is the next step we need to take? What is our goal for tomorrow, for next week, for next month, for the next six months, for the next year? That step-up plan from, from time frame to time frame to time frame, those can easily become your KRs. Are you expecting to be at 10% capacity by the end of this week? Are you expecting to be at 25% capacity by the end of the month? Are you expecting to be at 75% capacity within six months? If so, use those as your KRs. Not only are they time-bound, but they're also measurable. And everybody already knows that your goal is to get to 100%. So you don't have to keep restating it. You don't have to hold yourself to that one because you're going to be doing it anyway. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing any of this other work from now until next year. And then for each key result, what is the output? Not just what are you delivering, but what can people consume? What is their experience going to be? What is their usability going to be? Great security leaders always think about usability first. Whole other episode coming on that one on its own. So another example would be, let's say that your security team put together some sort of client library. You want to standardize this library across the entire engineering organization. Depending on how big it is, you might have a lot of microservices or you might have a monolith. Monolith makes this one a lot easier, so you might not even measure it if that's the case. But when it comes to the proliferation of different repositories and different code bases and different languages and all these things that can happen in some of these faster, more self-optimized organizations, you want to drive adoption. As a security leader, building those relationships in order to drive the adoption is really important. So you'll find yourself saying, by the end of next year, I want everybody to be using our new client library. 
It solves many problems, including whenever we make a change, everybody automatically receives the change. It takes work off of the engineers that they need to do themselves when it comes to maybe sanitizing input, sanitizing the query strings, maybe um, doing some sort of protection against IDORs or some of the other OWASP top tens. Maybe it's even protecting against some SQL injections. Maybe it's an authentication middleware. It could be any of these things, but you see the importance to how solving part of the security strategy is putting more capabilities in the hands of the engineer. So that's really what you want to be driving here. Let's tackle one tool, right? Let, let's find out if this is even a fit for the organization. Let's even find out if this can be done, right? So my first key result is, so my first key result is going to be, I want one repository or one service to onboard this new capability or this new client library within a month. The one makes it measurable and the one month makes it time bound. That's what you're holding yourself to. And again, it's the journey. This is your first step on the journey to accomplish that objective. And as a leader, one thing a lot of people always leave out is the concept of commander's intent. Objectives are midterm goals. Your vision is the long-term goal. The tactical work you're doing adds up to your key results. So you can start to see how everything is so connected. And if it's discontiguous where you are, it may not be functional. Take point and take leadership because if you disappeared tomorrow, Commander's intent means that everybody underneath you in that organization or working alongside of you trying to accomplish everything that you're trying to accomplish, they know exactly where they need to be and where they're aimed for. It's essentially the end goal. So now is our opportunity to do as Jocko always taught us. Let's detach from the situation. You are hired to be a security professional. You are an expert in your field. Otherwise, you would not have been chosen. Otherwise, you've demonstrated your ability to assess, inform, execute, and own on areas the business feels you have the ability to do so within. So now that everybody knows where we have to go, how we're gonna get there, and how we're gonna make sure we stay focused, it is your job as a leader to protect them from the crap the business can throw at them. And to sell these plans, you need to use the relationships that you have built or that you're going to build. To me, this is the most important skill any security professional can have. You could be the best hacker. You could be the best defender. You could be the best incident responder. But if you can't build relationships and you can't prove the value of the team that you're leading, the business will find somebody else who can, even if they lack the skill. For myself, I've had the opportunity to be not just a network engineer, not just a web developer, not just a front-end engineer, not just an IT person, not just a manager of the business, not just a security person. I've had so many different roles and responsibilities throughout all the different opportunities that I've had that it has taught me how to speak the common language of the different leaders in other business units. This is how you build empathy. This is how you understand how to think from their perspective. Anytime you're going to pitch an idea or propose something new that's going to, that you can anticipate is going to change their priority list, you can already understand why they're going to be thinking and why they're going to say no. You'll have the ability to plan beforehand so that that way you know the county argument before they even get a chance to say no. And I have an interesting way of kind of spinning this one a little bit too. So as the father of three boys, I have to, you know, really take into consideration teaching them respect and manners. So when, you know, they start to get old enough to start to date, you know, and somebody tells them no, you know, I have to teach them that no means no. And the thing that happens is the world is teaching them try and try again. Perseverance is the way through any problem. Never take no for an answer. But that's not really the case. Now, it's different in a professional world, but like when you really think about the gravity around what could happen if, if you don't respect somebody else's boundaries, well, hey, there's a problem. 
So the first thing that I try to teach them, number one, is that there's perseverance through, you know, not getting what you want. The world is not here for you. You are here to make the world a better place. So sometimes it requires you to, to switch your way of thinking. And sometimes the thinking is maybe what you're after isn't really what you want. Love and affection doesn't have to come from a specific person. Sometimes that love and affection needs to come from the family and from within first. Sometimes companionship doesn't need to come from a love interest. Maybe it comes from building better bonds and better friendships with those around you. It's almost important to focus on the ability to disconnect the primal instinct that you have as, you know, an animal and a human. And remember that you're granted with the ability to have emotion and understand emotional intelligence in addition to your intellectual intelligence. And at the end of the day, as long as you put it out there, you've done your part. Find a different way to spend your energy, grow yourself, invest in yourself. And this goes not just for that story I was mentioning about the boys. This goes back to the professional place too. Sometimes it means finding a different place to invest your time as a leader. Because you never want to end up in a place where Chief Information Security Officer, CISO, stands for Chief Information Scapegoat Officer. Because with the way that these laws are changing, you would be personally liable. So I want to find a way to bring that story back to what we were talking about with OKRs. And real quick, if you are saying, well, why am I going to relate something as important as like the no mean knowns to work when they're completely separate things? I am a firm believer that every day you wake up, it is to be better than you were yesterday. And if that means practicing these skills in both settings, practice them in both places so you can make improvement. Be better than you were yesterday and you'll be better than you were today, tomorrow. So let's say we, we go to the head of engineering and we're like, hey, look at our roadmap. One of the things that we want to be able to do is we want to change the authentication flow. Maybe we move to a completely passwordless thing, but it's going to take us six months to do it everywhere. And engineering is like, no, no, no. It's going to throw off our, you know, new ideas that we want to be able to put out there. It's going to ruin some features and, you know, it's going to throw off our entire timeline. And you're like, okay, that, that's fine. But just so you know, that risk of not implementing this passwordless feature is going to continue to compound the account takeovers that we're experiencing today, which cost the business and insert whatever your financial metric is for measuring account takeovers. Now I'd leave that little quip with the engineering team. And now I'm going to point my sights at the product team. Why? Because the product team's roadmap on being able to actually get product delivered, the stuff that comes down the roadmap handed off to engineering for them to actually build is going to be the thing that's ultimately affected by this. The more P0s and the more account takeovers that we have, the more firefighting that the engineering team is going to have to do, either squashing bugs or finding ways of solving some of the problems or maybe remapping some of the data on the back end. And the product team isn't going to be able to get any of their new features delivered. So who's at risk here? Is it the engineering team or the product team? Or maybe it's the legal team who doesn't want to have to file the 8K the next time that there's a material impact because of a compromise on the business. New SEC guidelines require a company to report within four business days when they determine that they've experienced a material cybersecurity event. Maybe the comms team doesn't want to have to draft external communications saying that there was a breach or doesn't want to templatize notifications of a breach. And by the way, you should have a playbook covering every single one of these situations where you have templates included for each one of the communications, each one of the forms that needs to get filled out, and roles and responsibilities of who needs to do what in the event that there's a breach, because that's what great leaders do, and that's what you do. 
And before we get too far off topic, let's go back to the engineering and the product conversation that we were talking about adding password lists. There's going to be opportunity that you're going to see product and engineering making the wrong security decision in order to drive change. The more folks they can get on the platform, and that means the easier they make it for more folks to get onto the platform, the more money they hope you'll make. But what they often forget is the fact that the security team itself is a shareholder in the company, especially in ones where stock is being granted. So of course they're incentivized to make the company grow. And this is where you can turn security from a cost center to a profit center. And implementing something like password lists has positive side effects where number one, you can reduce account takeovers because now there's no longer fishable credentials or you'll see a drop in credential stuffing in dictionary style attacks. You also see replay attacks where somebody is reusing passwords across multiple services and the same email address to log into each one of them or the same username. You'll see a huge drop in those too. And when I say password lists, I do mean something like pass keys or WebAuthn, as you heard me talk about in the MFA uh, episode a couple episodes ago. It'll also lead to a drop in support calls and social engineering through your support organization, making it easier for you to tailor training for that support organization on how they should properly handle when certain types of these situations arise through the support channels. Again, playbook, playbook, playbook. I'd even go as far as joking to say that a CISO can measure their success during their tenure by the size of their play I'm just kidding, playbooks. And the thing about playbooks is they build confidence. People grow trust in you when they see how well they, number one, are written and how well they are executed. That trust is a whole heck of a lot of building that relationship with those other business leaders. So instead of sending out those phishing emails where you're gonna sit there and reprimand somebody and then provide them immediate training and telling them how bad they are at just using computers in general, step back and think for a second. Have your red team send those phishing emails, have everybody else in the organization be unaware of that, and have them follow the playbook once it gets detected. Not only is this a fire drill, but it's also an opportunity for everybody to practice muscle memory and to show others how excellent the entire team is at doing their job. Last time I went fishing, I drove my car into a lake. Cause there's no way you can miss a fish when you do that. And immediately you see dividends on that investment. You see your security awareness training paying off. You see people sending emails, reaching out to the security channel, whichever the, the communication methods are that you put in place. The second that they realize that they're subject to that phishing campaign, they're reaching out. Security team is identifying those. They're grouping them together. They're responding like it was a real phishing campaign. They're following the playbook. It looks amazing. You're collecting metrics and then you turn that around and you report on the efficiency and the effectiveness of your program. This is how you build relationships. People need to know they can trust you. So when they see your vision, they see your ability to deliver, they see the journey that you're trying to put the company on, they see the next steps that you're taking. They understand that they can communicate in the same language because you have empathy for their role. They see your ability to lead a team. They see your ability to make sure that the company's interests are always protected and secured. They see the inventory of playbooks that you're growing. They see how much you actually don't have to be involved anymore day to day because you can trust the people on your team. That builds confidence and trust in you as a leader. This is the goal. This is how you achieve that security leadership strategy and tactic, overarching golden, hey, end game, everything's great, everything's phenomenal, I feel comfortable, I can sleep at night. So I hope that this helps kind of close that whole chapter around that security leadership strategy and tactics concept and, and uh, topic that we started on last episode. 
And if you haven't started there, I do think that this episode by itself will bring a lot of value, but I really do encourage you to go back and look at episode eight, since we spent a lot of time understanding how do we even identify what the problems that we need to solve are. And I do want to take a little bit of time to thank you as the listener for, you know, number one, encouraging me to continue on with this. Number two, for giving me ideas to even kind of dig into in the first place and for trusting me with some of the content that I put out there. It's a different way of thinking about it, but it's like everybody has their own and that's what makes them special. So by the time that you're ready to take on that leadership role within the security org, you have all these years of experience, very unique experience just to you and your journey on how you got here. And I think that's one of the things uh, I had somebody ask me kind of like, what was my career like? Uh, what was my journey through the careers over the past 20 years or so? Um, and I think next episode, uh, it will be episode 10. So I think I'm going to highlight on that one just to kind of put a nice little bow on everything. And with that, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Plan B Security with me, Mike McIntosh.